Amen. All right, well, we're there in Nehemiah chapter number six. We're making our way uh, through the book of Nehemiah. We're not doing a study of Nehemiah, but we're gathering principles from the book of Nehemiah. I think this is now our sixth or seventh sermon in this series entitled Rise and Build. And we're learning principles from Nehemiah on how to build a life that makes an impact, how to make a difference with our lives, how to not just live and, and die and have accomplished nothing with our lives. And I think we'll have maybe two more sermons in this series before we're done. But we find ourselves here in chapter number six, and we're only going to deal with the first part of chapter six. Next week, we'll deal with the latter part of, of chapter six there. But if you look at verse one, I want you to notice the story, what's going on. We're continuing this, uh, this process that they're going through. They're building the wall. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Gishem the Arabian, these are the bad guys, these are the enemies, notice, and the rest of our enemies heard. Now notice what they heard, that I had builded the wall. They are hearing good things. They are hearing that progress is being made, that the wall is being built. And notice, they heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach. The word breach means a gap or a break. So they had basically completed the wall. There was no more uh, gaps. There's no more weak places. There's no breaks in the wall. There was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gate. So basically all that's left is the wall is built, but they still have got to put the doors up to finish everything up. Up. Now notice, when the enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah, Gisham, and the rest of our enemies heard that they had builded, or Nehemiah says that I had builded the wall, notice verse 2, then Sanballat and Gisham sent unto me, saying, now notice what they said, all right? These are the bad guys, but they, they send a message to Nehemiah, notice, saying, come, let us meet together. They said, hey, Nehemiah, will you join us? Hey, Nehemiah, will you come to where we are? Hey, Nehemiah, we'd like to meet with you. We'd like to have a cup of coffee with you. Maybe we can have a, a, a lunch or a brunch or a breakfast. Would you stop what you're doing and let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief? Now, you've got to understand this, and, and um, we're going to be in the first part of Nehemiah, but let me just show you something towards the end of the, of, of the chapter there. Look at verse number 17. When you are building, and we talked about this several weeks ago, when you build, you must battle. Why? Because when you build, you always attract opposition. You cannot be accomplishing something without the enemy taking notice. And here you have these enemies. You have these people who are against Nehemiah, but they are pretending to be his friend. Notice verse 17 of chapter 6. Moreover, in those days, the nobles. We've heard a lot about these nobles. These guys are just a bunch of problems. The nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah. So notice they're writing letters to Tobiah today. You know, if you want to apply it, they're sending Facebook messages to Tobiah. You know, they're, they're uh, corresponding on Twitter with Tobiah. And the letters of Tobiah came unto them. Notice verse 18. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him. Sworn unto who? Unto Tobiah. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Notice verse 19. They also reported his good deeds before me and uttered my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. Here's what you got to understand. When you are building, there will always be those who pretend to be your friend, who pretend to be friendly, who pretend like they like you to your face and behind your back. They're talking, you know, uh, criticizing you. They're, they are uh, talking about about you. They want to see you 
fail. And as a leader, especially as a leader, Nehemiah needed discernment. Now notice, he's not, you know, tearing these people up. He's basically just ignoring them, but he is realizing that there are people. And you've got to understand, there will be people who will betray you. And here's what I've seen uh, interesting and I found to be interesting in both Scripture, as I study the Bible, as I read the stories of Scripture, and just in my own personal life over the last, you know, four and a half years or five, almost five years that I, uh, I've pastored this church, you know, and my wife have been, and I have been in ministry. I've noticed that for some reason, the people who are trying to do you hurt and the people who are trying to steal the hearts of the people and the people who are trying to, to cause you to fail and they're criticizing you behind your back and they're lying about you or they're just mad at you you but they won't confront you to to your face for some some weird reason they get other people to sing their praises in front of you because notice what it says verse 19 and this must have been so annoying to nehemiah also they reported his good deeds before me can you imagine nehemiah having to sit there and listen to people talk good about tobiah and nehemiah saying himself don't you know what tobiah is trying to do to us don't you know what tobiah wants to see us fail and you know you got to be careful of that you got to be careful of just assuming that, oh, so-and-so. They thought, oh, he must be godly because he's married to so-and-so, or he's a father-in-law of so-and-so, or he's related to this person. I'm sorry, the son-in-law of so-and-so, he's related to this person. There's always going to be those who pretend to be your friend, but are going to stab you in the back. You just got to understand that. That's part of building. That's part of being successful. That's part of growing. That's part of accomplishing something. Now, here's what you got to understand. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 6. Look at verse 2. And by the way... You just, you just have to realize, you start doing something for God, don't get discouraged. People are going to criticize. Look, there are people in this room right now who are criticizing me and my wife behind our back. You say, Pastor, you know that? Yeah, we know it. So well, what do you do about it? I don't do anything about it. I just let people talk nice about them to my face, and I say, oh, really? I say, why? Because that's what a leader does. You say, well, I didn't. You know who you are. <laughs> you know, but it's just the way it works. It's just how it goes. When you start, you cannot accomplish. You cannot succeed. You cannot build. You cannot do something without having someone being upset that you didn't do this or you didn't do that or I think you should do. It's funny how everyone who isn't doing anything wants to tell people who are actually doing something how to do it. I always think it's funny how people who've been out soul winning for two weeks want to try to, you know, tell the people who've been out soul winning for 10 years how to do it. You know, it's like you just showed up last week, but you've got all the answers, you know. And that's how it works. People always want to criticize when you're doing something for God. Look at verse 2. That Sambalad and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Now I want you to notice, and here's what Nehemiah knew, and here's the discernment. But they thought to do me mischief. See, his enemies knew. His enemies knew. If they could get Nehemiah off the wall, he was not going to go back. You've got to understand this. They want to distract Nehemiah. Nehemiah is working. Nehemiah is planning. Nehemiah is accomplishing. And they're saying, hey, Nehemiah, stop working for a minute. Just come off that wall. We just want to have lunch. We just want to take you out to Starbucks. We just want a minute with you. Just get off the wall. Meet us in the villages of Ono. Let us distract you for a little bit. And here's what they knew. If they could get him off the wall, they could destroy him and they could destroy the work. And here's what you got to understand. And here's what, you know, corporate America has learned. Distractions destroy work. And Nehemiah understood this. And Nehemiah grasped this and he got this, that if he got off the wall, he was not going to go back. They were not going to let him back. They were going to kill him. They were going to destroy him. And here's what you got to understand. You say, well, what, what does this mean to us? 
Your enemy wants to distract you. See, here's what I know. God has given you something to do. God has given you a, a wall to build. And your, your wall may be different than my wall. I believe that what God has given for me and my wife and our purpose in life is to, you know, uh, lead this church and to lead this ministry and to pastor a church that's actively soul winning and reaching people and preaching the truth and getting people saved and baptized and discipling them in the things of God. And those things may not be popular and sometimes they're a little controversial, but that's okay. We just want to be faithful in the things that God has given us. Maybe your wall is different. Maybe you're supposed to build a business. Some of you are supposed to raise children. If you're married, God has given you a wall of marriage to build. And God has a wall for you to do. God has a work. I mean, do you believe that God has a purpose for your life? Do you believe that God has a work he wants you to do? God has something he wants you to accomplish. But here's what you got to understand. And here's what the enemy knows. Go with me to the book of Luke. Keep your finger there, Nehemiah. We're going to stay in Nehemiah. That's the text. But go to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the New Testament. Here's what the enemy knows. If he can distract you, he can destroy you. And if he can get you off that wall, then you're probably not going to go back. And you're probably not going to finish. And if we can just get Nehemiah to meet us for coffee... He's not going to finish the wall, and he's not going to finish what God would have him to do. Your enemy, you got to understand this, your enemy wants to distract you. Are you there in Luke chapter 9? Look at Luke chapter 9 and verse number 62. Let me show it to you how, how Christ put, put it. Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Notice what the Bible says. And Jesus said unto him, notice what Jesus said, No man... Having put his hand to the plow, the idea there is that he got to work. He grabbed the tool and he got to work. But notice, and looking back, not only did he start building, not only did he start working, but he got distracted. And he looked back. Notice, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus said, if you're going to be distracted while you're working, if you're going to be distracted while you're building, if you're going to be looking somewhere else and, and paying attention to something else, he said, you're not even fit for the kingdom of God and the work that I'd have you to do. Here's what Jesus is saying. I can't have followers. I can't have disciples. I can't have people that are committed to the cause of Christ that are distracted and constantly looking back at something else and wondering about, I wonder what's going on over there. And I wonder what I could do with that time. And I wonder what would happen if I did that. He says, if you're going to build, you've got to focus. He says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is for the kingdom of God. You say, why? Because they thought to do you mischief. Because they know that if they can distract you, they can destroy you. Go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number 11. Remember Hebrews? If you, if you start from the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and you go backwards, you'll go past the book of Jude, past 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, past 1st and 2nd Peter, James, and Hebrews, all right? Now, when you get to Hebrews, put a bookmark or a bulletin or a ribbon or something there, because we're going to leave Hebrews, and then we're going to come back to it, all right? Hebrews chapter number 11, from the back of the Bible, you got Revelation, Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, James, and Hebrews. And make sure you keep your place there. We're going to leave it and come back to it. Hebrews chapter number 11. You say, well, why do they want to distract you? Because if they can get you off the wall, if they can get you off the wall, they thought to do me mischief, is what Nehemiah said. If they can get you off the wall, you're probably not going to go back. You're probably going to get hurt. You're probably going to get discouraged. You're probably going to get distressed. 
and the work is going to be destroyed. Are you there in Hebrews chapter number 11? Look at what the Bible says. Same principle. Different, different idea, different uh, uh, illustration, but same principle. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 14. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Talking about the heavenly country. The fact that they're not of this world. Look at verse 15. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out. What does that mean? If they were distracted. They're seeking a country, but they're mindful of the country they came out of. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're looking for the heavenly. They're looking for the spiritual, but they're thinking about the earthly. They're thinking about the temporal. He says if they had been mindful, if they had been distracted with the country from whence they came out, here's where the work gets destroyed, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy, if you're there in Hebrews, keep going backwards. Keep your place in Hebrews, but go backwards, backwards, past Philemon, past Titus, past 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, I'm sorry, not past 1 and 2 Timothy. I want you in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me give you an example of this. Here you have a young man named Demas. Demas was in the ministry with the greatest missionary who ever lived, the greatest church planner who ever lived, the Apostle Paul. I mean, how many of us would have loved to travel with the Apostle Paul? Just to spend time with, with one of the greatest men, one of the greatest spiritual giants in the, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Demas was there with Paul. I mean, he, he was in the midst of this movement that was turning the world upside down, but he got distracted. Notice what the Bible says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, like verse 10. For Demas hath forsaken me. Why did he forsake you, Paul, having loved this present world? And is a part unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. See, what happened to uh, Demas? Here's what happened. He started seeking for a country and he became mindful of the country from whence he came out. I mean, how many Christians do we know? How many testimonies have we seen? How many people have we seen come to church, get saved, get baptized, get on fire? They start coming. They're, they're coming Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They're soul winning. They're reading the Bible. They're praying. They're tithing. They're doing this. They're doing that. Then they get a job or a different job. Or they get married. And there's nothing wrong with getting married, but it can be a distraction sometimes. Or they get uh, pregnant, or they, you know, start a business, or something happens where the enemy says, and sometimes it's not even a bad thing. He just says, hey, can you get off that wall for a second? And, and they say, Pastor, I'm just taking a break. I'm just taking a break. I'll be back soul winning. I'm going to be back to, to three to thrive. You know, I'm going to be back to the things that I was doing. I'm just taking a break right now. It's just a season of life. I need to do this. And here's what the enemy knows. If he can get you off the wall, you're probably not going to come back. Because distractions destroy work. So what do you do? What do you do when you get distracted? What do you do when you're faced with distractions? What do you do when the enemy is tempting you and the enemy is alluring you and the enemy is saying, just a cup of coffee, just a cup of coffee. Just get off the wall, just for a second. What do you do? Let me give you three things this morning that I think Nehemiah did. If you get back to Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll give you three things. We won't be very long. Nehemiah chapter 6, look at verse 3. Nehemiah 6.3 is one of my favorite verses in the book of Nehemiah. I think it's one of the best statements in the book, one of the best verses in the book. I I love Nehemiah 6.3. Notice what Nehemiah says. And I sent messengers unto them saying, notice what he says. He says, I am doing... A great work so that I cannot come down. He said, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. You say, what do I do when I'm tempted to be distracted? Number one, you focus on what God would have you to do. 
You focus on what God would want you to do. You don't have to turn there, but in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul made this statement, and we were just talking about Paul. You say, well, why did Paul accomplish so much for God? And I think one of the reasons he accomplished so much for God is because he never lost sight. He never lost focus on what God would have him to do. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. You don't have to turn there. You can jot it down and reference it later if you'd like. Paul said this, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. And he said this, but this, he said, but this one thing I do. He said, I'm focused on the one thing that God has given me to do. And it's usually the one thing. It's not usually one thing. Notice he says, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth into those things which are before. I mean, usually there's more to do. Paul, Nehemiah would say, I'm building the wall. Now that includes uh, filling in the breaches. That includes putting in the, 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 the doors. That includes, you know, uh, feeding the men and, and, and protecting the men. There's lots of things to do in that thing. But he had that one thing. And Paul said, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. And he said, reaching forth unto those things which are before. Notice the focus, verse 34. I press toward the mark. He was focused. For the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. See, what do you do when the enemy wants to distract you? You focus on what God would have you to do. You don't lose track. You learn to say these words, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. And isn't our society just full of distractions? I mean, we live in an ADD society. The whole thing. Everyone. They all need Ritalin. You know what I mean? They all, they're all, I mean, we have a, the, a short attention span, glittering things and flickering things, you know, distract us easily. Can't, we can't focus. And some of you are being distracted of the work that God has called you to do. And you don't realize that it's, it's, it's an agenda to distract you because Satan knows if I can distract him, I can destroy the wall, I can destroy the work that God has called him to do. I mean, let's talk about it. What are some of the distractions? The first distraction that comes to mind, television. I mean, isn't television a distraction? According to a study done by the A.C. Nielsen Company and the California State University of Northridge, the average American, means the average person sitting in this room right now, the average American watches more than four hours of TV each day. That's 28 hours a week. That's two months of nonstop TV watching per year. I mean, could you imagine just starting January 1st and saying, I'm going to get all the TV watching out at the beginning of the year just so I can be productive the rest of the year, and you just spend the entire month of January and February in front of the television? Accomplishing what? Nothing. Doing nothing. Americans watch more than four hours of TV each day, 28 hours a week, two months of nonstop TV watching a year. In a 65-year-old life, that person will have spent nine years of their life glued in front of the tube. And you say, my marriage is falling apart. I'm losing the heart of my children. My kids don't respect me. I, I feel like they, 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 their friends are more important than I am. And, and, you, and you're losing the time that God has given you because you're watching reality TV. You got to be just in your reality of your life focusing on your children, focusing on your wife. Focusing on your business. Some of you are so far in debt. I mean, it's crazy. And you think, well, I got to work on Sunday. Why don't you just cut out the four hours of TV you watch every night? You're distracted. And you're losing the work. Because the enemy knows if I can get him off the wall, he's probably not going to go back. How about social media? Facebook, Twitter. 
According to the NBC News, the average American spent 40 minutes a day on Facebook. Just Facebook alone. We're not even talking about Twitter and all the other things. According to marketingcharts.com, social networks, just all of them together, eat three hours per day for the average American. I don't understand how anybody gets anything. They spend four hours watching TV and then three hours on social media. We're not even talking about your angry birds. You know what I mean? I mean, we're not even talking about your, all your other stuff that you're doing. And you say, well, I just don't understand. My finances are a mess. My marriage is a mess. My kids hate me. I just feel like I'm not accomplishing anything. Maybe if you stop being so distracted, you could accomplish something. You could do something. How about watching sports? Let's, let's go ahead and pick on everybody. You know that watching sports is the biggest waste of time? The 49ers. You know that the 49ers win the Super Bowl? It changes nothing in your life. It changes nothing in the world. And people get all mad about the 49ers. I'll preach against the 49ers. You know why? Because it's a waste of time. I'm thankful that when I was a kid, that was the thing. We, we grew up in the Bay Area. And you know, I was a little 49ers fan. My brother was a Raiders fan. I think I remember when I was a kid, I told my dad, I want, I want to get a 49ers jacket. And my dad's like, okay, we were at the store buying jackets. And he's like, there's a $20 jacket. And then there's another jacket that's exactly the same thing, except it had a 49ers logo. And it was like $60. And my dad's like, wait, let me get this straight. You, we're going to spend like three times the amount for a jacket that's going to keep you just as warm so you can advertise for them for free? I mean, they're not even going to pay you. And my dad's like, do you know that people get paid for advertising, right? He's like, well, your dad was so... I'm thankful that my dad put things in perspective to me and explained to me, hey, sports, I'm not trying to break your heart. I'm just going to get you all mad. That's fine. Sports are a waste of time. It doesn't matter who wins the World Cup. It doesn't matter who wins the Super Bowl. It doesn't matter who wins the World Series. It doesn't matter before it happens, while it's happening, after it happens. Nothing changes. Nothing in your life changes. Nothing was built. It's a waste of time. It's a distraction. And some of you guys are so into the sports. You just don't wonder. You just don't realize why nothing's being done. You're losing your family, but you got all the sports stats. How about money? Are, are you there? I don't know where you're at. Get to First Timothy. If you're, if you're, you're in Second Timothy, right? Go to First Timothy. Go to First Timothy, chapter six. Let's talk about men and money. Men can be a distra- money can be a distraction for men. Now, look, you need money. You need to provide for your family. You need to have a house and a car and all those things. I get that. I'm not against that. In fact, the Bible teaches you should. But listen to me, guys. Please listen carefully. I mean, how how much money do you need? Because, look, there's always more overtime. There's always another trip you could take. There's always another project you could take on. There's always more you can do. But how much do you need? Notice 1 Timothy 6, 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Listen to me. I'd rather live in a not-so-nice house but spend time with my wife and my kids? I'd rather maybe drive a car that's 10 years old and, yeah, it's got some issues and I've got to ignore, ignore some of the lights on the dashboard because I, they're just, you know, I don't think they're supposed to be on, but, you know, it's just, it is what it is. And I'd rather do that and serve God and accomplish something and do something that matters. I mean, how much money do you need? I'm not against you having money, but how much do you need? Let's talk about ladies and money. Are you there in First Timothy? Go to chapter 5, look at verse 14. First Timothy 5, 14. Notice what the Bible says. Notice what the Bible says, 1 Timothy 5.14. Let's go ahead and step on everybody's toes. See, some of you ladies were liking it when I was talking about sports. You're like, yeah, honey, I told you. 
Okay, let's get on you, ladies. First Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 14. I will therefore, notice, here's God's will for a young lady's life. I will therefore that the younger women, here's God's will for a lady's life. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, be the CEO of eBay. Is that what it says? I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, be an astronaut, be the first president of the United States. Be the governor of the state of California. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You know what the greatest thing that a lady could do with her life is to raise her children, is to be at home. Say, well, you don't understand. I mean, you know, if I don't work, then we won't be able to pay the house. Why don't you sell the house, get a cheaper house, and stay home with your kids? Well, we won't be able to drive that nice car. Why don't you sell the car? Guess what? You won't need a second car if you're not working. Say, well, we won't be able to. And you don't understand. And I spent all these years in school, and my mother-in-law is going to say this, and my dad's going to say this, and my friends are going to say this, and they're going to make fun of me for being a stay-at-home mom. Some of you ladies need to learn. When they start criticizing you for staying home, when they start criticizing you for homeschooling, when they start criticizing you for focusing on your children who are eternal beings who actually matter, you ought to just learn to say this. I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. I won't come down off that wall for another house, for another car, for a pension. I won't come down off that wall. God has given me a great work to do. How about alcohol? Go to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. Say, I don't know how to get to Proverbs. Open up your Bible. Just right in the center. You'll fall into the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you got the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 23, look at verse 31. Proverbs 23, verse 31. We're just going to pick on everything. Proverbs 23, verse 31. Notice what the Bible says. I want you to look at it. Proverbs 23, verse 31. It's a clear command from Scripture. Notice what the Bible says. Look not. Okay, that's a command. You ever ever read something that said like, thou shalt not, you know? Okay, here's what he's saying. Look not thou upon the wine. You know, God tells you that there is a, a certain wine that you're not even supposed to look at. Look not thou upon the wine. Now, it's at a certain time. He didn't say you're never allowed to look at the wine. He said, look not thou upon the wine when, when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. The Bible says that you are not to even look, much less drink, much less touch. He said, don't even look upon the wine when, now that when there is referring to when it's fermented. Now, let me go ahead and stop you right now. Some of you are thinking, oh, Pastor, don't you know? That Jesus turned water into wine? And people say that to me, and I think to myself, no, you know what? I've given my life to preaching the word of the God, and I've never heard that Jesus turned water into wine. I'm familiar with the story, yes. Say, well, what about that? Okay, let's, let's see what the Bible says. Go to the book of Isaiah. You're there in Proverbs. You're in Proverbs 23. Go past Ecclesiastes, past Song of Solomon, into Isaiah. Because here's what you've got to understand, okay? The Bible uses the word wine in Scripture to talk about two different things. One is grape juice. I'm going to prove that to you in a minute. The other one is that same grape juice when it is fermented. Now, when it is fermented, he says, look not thou upon the wine. When it, is, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it has that poison in it. He says, but before that, it's okay to look upon the wine. He said, well, I never heard that the Bible uses the word wine, you know, and, and juice interchangeably or as the same word. Let me prove it to you. Are you there in Isaiah 65? Isaiah 65, look at verse 8. Isaiah 65, I want you to look at it. Some of you are upset. You say, I'm never coming back. I can't believe you tell me. Just look at what the Bible says. It's okay if you don't come back. That's why we're giving it to you before you leave. Isaiah 65, look at verse 8. Notice what he says. Thus saith the Lord. Notice what he says. 
as the new wine is found in the cluster. Okay, now, in order for the grape to be on the cluster, it still has to be connected to the vine. You know what that means? That the Bible says that you can have new wine in the cluster, which means it's not fermented. You understand that? Say, well, why didn't, you know, back when our King James Bible was translated 400 years ago, the word wine was used interchangeably with juice. You say, well, I've got a newer version of the Bible. Well, we don't use those versions because they are perverted, because they change Scripture, because they, you know, change. I don't, you say, why didn't those new versions change it to juice? I don't know. Maybe they have an agenda. But here the Bible says that you can find new wine found in the cluster. Let me give you another example. Go back to the book of Song of Solomon. You're there in Isaiah, just one book before, Song of Solomon. Just look at what the Bible says. Before you start making preconceived ideas, before you start arguing the mind, look, just look at what it says. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Look at verse 2. Let me prove to you that the Bible uses the word wine and juice interchangeably. Song of Solomon, right before Isaiah, Chapter 8, verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house. Here you've got a young lady talking to a young man. They're in love. They're getting married. Who would instruct me? Notice what she says. I would cause thee to drink of the spiced wine. And then he says, let me explain what that means. Of the juice of my pomegranate. Do you see that? It's not even talking about grapes. And here he, she says, pomegranate wine, she says pomegranate juice, because here's what you got to understand. The Bible teaches that you should not drink alcohol. It says, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth this color of the cup, when it turns itself right. God says you should not drink alcohol. And people say, well, Jesus turned water into wine. If Jesus turned water into wine, that would make him a sinner because he went against Proverbs 23, 31. Well, what did Jesus do? He turned water into juice, grape juice, which they called wine. The new wine is found in the cluster. Now, listen to me. You say, well, I don't believe that. I think you can drink alcohol, and I think you can do it in moderation. That's fine. I'm just telling you where I stand. This is what I believe. I don't believe that anyone should ever, for any reason, ever drink alcohol. And you say, well, I don't agree with that. Okay, that's fine. You may not agree with that, but let me tell you something. Some of you drink too much. It's a distraction. And you say, well, how do you know? How do you know if if, if I drink too much? Let me explain to you how you know if you drink too much, okay? If someone ever says to you, you drink too much, you drink too much. You say, how do you know that? Here's how I know that. They didn't want to say that to you. In fact, the first time they thought in their mind, so-and-so drinks too much, they didn't say it to you. And it took them a long time to, to, to get the, the, the boldness, and to get the confidence. And, to, and, and they came to you, and they had that little intervention, you know, and they say, Mom, listen, Mom, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, but I just think you drink too much. Or, Dad, you just drink too much. Or, honey, honey, you know, I'm not trying to, I just think you drink too much. And if anyone's ever said that to you, you drink too much. And it's a distraction. And it's destroying your work. How about drugs? How about prescription drugs? How about pornography? How about gambling? How about, I mean, what about every habit? I mean, every habit out there. Anyone ever told you, you do this too much. You probably do it too much. Because that person probably did not want to say that to you. And it's a distraction. And we need to learn to say, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. What do you do? You focus on what God has called you to do. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Number two, if you go back, uh, actually go to Hebrews. Did you keep your place in Hebrews? Go to Hebrews and look at Hebrews chapter number 12. Let me read for you Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 3. Notice what he says. Then send Balit. And Gisham sent them to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief, and I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. He says, Why should the work cease whilst I leave it? 
He said, I, I'm not going to do what you're trying to get me to do because you're trying to distract me, and distractions destroy work. So what do you do? Number one, you focus on what God would have you to do. Number two, you forsake the things that are distracting you. Are you there in Hebrews chapter 12? Look at verse 1. Notice what the writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 12, 1. Wherefore seeing, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, notice he says, let us lay aside every weight, and then he says this, and the sin which does so easily beset us. Now look, here's what he's saying. There is sin in your life that is easily besetting you. That's the drugs, that's the alcohol, that's, that's the prescription drug addiction, that, those things. That, that's a sin. You, you need to stop doing it. I'm not saying that if you're on prescription drugs, you're a sin, but there are definitely people who are, you know, you, when you've got four different doctors you're getting prescriptions from, you know, and they don't know about each other, you've got a problem, all right? It, it's, a, it's a problem in the United States of America today. And he says you got to lay aside the sin, but notice he also says to lay aside the weight. You know that there are some things in your life that are not a sin, but they're a distraction? For you? You know that there are things in your life, they're not a sin. There's nothing wrong with it, but they are distracting you. And you may have to learn to lay aside every weight and the sin, which does so easily beset you. I was reading a book by, by a man who, who he writes a lot about families and different things like that. And he said that he had a, uh, a hobby that he did. He, he flew airplanes. He, had, he owned an airplane, and he flew it as a hobby. He really enjoyed flying planes. But as he got married and started having children, he realized that this flying planes was a distraction in his life. He, could, it's not so, he couldn't take his wife with him because she got motion sick, you know? So he had something he had to do by himself. And he just realized that it was taking a lot of time away from his family, and it was taking a lot of resources away from his family because it was costing him so much to do this. And he just had to come to a place where he just said, you know what, I, I'm not going to, he sold the plane, he said, I'm not going to fly planes anymore. That's not going to be my heart. Is there something sinful with that? There's nothing sinful about that at all. But it was a distraction that he had to lay aside so that he can focus on the wall that God had built him to work. Do you understand that? I'm not saying playing basketball on Friday nights is a sin, but for some of you it can become a sin. Video games can take up a lot of time. Golf can take up a lot of time. I'm not saying it's a sin, but sometimes things that are not sins become a distraction. So what do you do? Say, Nehemiah, is it a sin? You can't come meet us for coffee? I mean, what's wrong with that? And Nehemiah would say, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a distraction, so I'm not going to do it. What do you do when you're tempted to be distracted? Number one, you focus on what God has called you to do. Number two, you forsake the things that are distracting you. And then number three, if you can get back to Nehemiah chapter 6, we're, we're going to be done here in five minutes, three minutes. Nehemiah chapter 6, look at verse 3. You finish your work for God's glory. You finish your work for God's glory. Notice what Nehemiah said. Look at verse 3. Look at the last part of verse 3. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? He said, I'm not going to stop till I'm done. Notice verse 15. I love verse 15 in Nehemiah 6. So the wall was finished. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month, Elud, in 52 days. It took him 52 days to finish the wall. 
3, verse 16. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things. No, I don't want you to miss verse 16. When all our enemies heard thereof, the enemies that are trying to distract you, when they heard that the wall was finished, the gates were up, it was, it, it was done. You could package it. It's ready to go. He said, when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, saw what things that they finished. Notice what it says about the enemies. They were much cast down in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. You know the best way to get back to your enemies? Get back at your enemies? I remember when we started this church four years ago, four, eight, four years and eight months ago, or whatever it was. I remember so many people were just like, criticizing us and attacking us. I remember having a, a, a pastor call me. You know, this is four years ago. I was 25 years old. I'm, I'm just trying to start a church. We're meeting in our living room. I mean, we're just trying to be faithful and love people. I had a pastor who'd been in ministry for like 15 years. I mean, much older. He's calling me. He's telling me that, you know, I'm not going to succeed and I better just quit and I better just stop because they didn't like the certain things that we did. And they would tell us, you're not going to build a church singing those old hymns. You're not going to build a church preaching the Bible like that. And you're not going to, you know, taking all those stands and, and you're just a radical and it's never going to happen. You know, I could have got all mad and all upset. I could have gone on Facebook and started writing all these things about, well, let me tell you, and you're a liberal here, and I could have done all those things. But you know what I decided? I decided I'm just going to put my nose down. I'm going to get to work. I'm going to do the work that God has called me to do. And right now, when those guys' churches are closing, and four years later, we have 100, 120. I'm not saying we have a lot of people here, but here's what I'm saying. The best way to get back at your enemies is to just finish the work that God called you to do. And you say, we're not, we're not even close to being there. Forty years from now, wherever God takes us, it, it, that'll be the testament to the critic. That'll be the testament to the backbiter. That'll be the testament to the people that come in here and want to ruin us or want to fight us or want to divide us. You say, well, don't you know, Pastor so-and-so is saying this about you? And don't you know they made this video and they said this and they did It doesn't matter. I'm just going to finish the work that God's called me to do. Say, well, pastor, you don't understand, if I start homeschooling my kids, if I quit my job, if I do this, if I do that, they'll criticize me. Just finish the work that God has called you to do. The best way to get back to your enemies is to finish what they're trying to hinder you from doing. What do you do when distractions come? Because distractions destroy your work. You focus on what God has called you to do. You forsake the things that are distracting you. And you finish the work for God's glory. Every week in the Nehemiah series, I've been giving you a question. Remember, I first question was, what breaks your heart? We talked about how can I leverage who I am to help others. We talked about can you see what's near you? We give you all sorts of different questions. Here's the question for this week, okay? What does it take to distract you? What does it take to distract you? For some of you, it's sin. For some of you, it's just hobbies. For some of you, it's different things. But here's this question. You know what that is, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. What does it take to distract you? God has given you a wall. God has given you a work. God has given you a purpose. God has something he wants you to do. What does it take to get you off that wall? Because here's what the enemy knows. If I can get him off the wall, if I can get him distracted, I can destroy the work because if he comes off the wall, he's probably not going to go back on. 